0: Good morning, church. Hope you're doing well. I want to start this morning off with a question to ponder. We don't do enough pondering in our lives, and, uh, and so let's ponder this together. Has there ever been a time, specifically in your adult life, when you kind of looked at your current situation and you wished you could go back in time to your childhood where things were easier. You know, there's all kinds of responsibilities and stressors in adulthood. Uh, there's all kinds of different things that, that weigh on us at different times and in different ways. We have taxes that many of us are going to be filing, um, or if you're smart, you pay someone to have them filed for you. Uh, you've got jobs to go to. I should say, we've got jobs. I'm involved in this. Um, we have families to care for. We have car maintenance to make sure is done. We've got mortgages to pay. The list can go on and on and on. All of these things kind of building up. And wouldn't it just be so much easier, so much simpler to go back to our childhood? You know, when I think of my childhood, I think, man, there was so much more joy back then. There was so much more innocence, right? I was was insulated from all of these responsibilities that now I have to always think about day in and day out. And Man, it just felt like, there's so much more freedom, you know? And I'm sure all of us have had a moment or two like this uh, when, we, when we really think about kind of the burdens of adulthood. Well, now I want to ask you the same question, really, but from a little bit of a different perspective. For those of us who are Christians in the room, who know Christ as our Savior, have you ever wished you could go back to your spiritual childhood? You ever wish that you could go back to the, kind of that time in the initial weeks or, or months, even years, where your faith was still new? You felt like things were maybe a little bit easier. You were, just naturally, you were on fire for Jesus. I mean, that, that, that burden that was lifted, that freedom from sin, it was tangible. It was, it was new. You, you felt so loved and accepted by God. And there was nothing, it, it seemed like, that, that could take that away from you. But now, as maybe the years have gone on you, you start to kind of feel the burden of faithfulness. You feel that, man, it is is hard to be a Christian. Sin seems to be overtaking you more and more and more. And you're wrestling with guilt and shame as a result. Maybe if you had to choose a word to describe your faith at this moment, it would be stagnant. You just don't feel like you're going anywhere. You are stuck. The intimacy that you had with God seems to really be more of a distant memory than a present reality. And wouldn't it just be nice to go back to when things were easier, when things were simpler? Well, friends, if if that's you this morning, there is encouragement in Galatians 3 verses 1 through 9. Because In it, Paul is going to answer for us a very foundational question to the Christian faith, which is how do we deal with our sin after we've become a Christian? How do we return to the grace and the freedom and the forgiveness that we once experienced and experience it all over again? So even if you're not necessarily feeling stuck or stagnant in your faith, even if you don't feel like you're in this kind of crisis moment with your faith and you don't feel like you're necessarily being conquered by lots of sin, this is still a very relevant and it's an important concept for us to understand as Christians because no matter where you are in your faith, no matter where you would put yourself on that spectrum, sin is going to seek to destroy you. It's going to be an ever-present reality. There's going to be temptation that enters into your life. And so Paul is, is going to provide an answer to that question then that is so relevant, so practical. How do we deal with our sin? And his answer is this. The way that we respond to sin as a Christian is the same way we responded to sin in order to become a Christian. The means by which a person becomes a Christian is the same means by which a person then grows as a Christian. Now, before we actually look at what that means and uh, and really kind of the, the the full answer to that, I want to just kind of give a really basic overview of the book of Galatians so that we kind of approach this passage with some context. If you've been coming with us, uh, if you've been coming here to uh, to hear our series, we have not been in the book of Galatians. We've been in the book of Daniel, and uh, we're going to continue that series starting next week. Uh, and so uh, Galatians is not something that we've talked about a lot. So for that sake, I want to kind of just give A little bit of a backstory to it. So we understand exactly what's happening in these nine verses before we look too deeply at them. So Paul, who wrote the letter, who wrote the book of Galatians, in his first missionary journey, he was traveling through the region of Galatia. And that was a Roman province at the time. And of course, he was preaching the gospel. And as a result of his preaching, Likely, not just one, but actually several, multiple churches started kind of uh, sprouting up in that area. And so you have a lot of young Christians. Likely, all of them were Gentile. There was not a heavy Jewish representation in this population. And so you're, you're still fairly immature in your faith, right? You've only been a Christian probably for maybe a year or so after hearing Paul's uh, message of the gospel. And so there's not a lot of theological formation that's happened yet. It's not like they know all the ins and outs of Christianity. And so they are fairly susceptible, you'd probably say, to being convinced of an alternative gospel. And that's exactly what's starting to happen. You have Judaizers that are moving into these groups of, of young Christians And they're starting to basically preach that it was obedience to the law that is going to actually make a person righteous. In other words, these Jewish false teachers were trying to convince these Gentile Christians that in order to be right before God, they needed to become like a Jew. They needed to adhere to the Old Testament law. And so throughout Galatians, then you're going to see Paul responding to that idea, to that concept. And he's going to be addressing that from several different angles. He's going to be talking about a lot of different things all to respond to that claim by these Judaizers. So he's going to be talking about justification a lot. What does it mean to be made right before God? How does that happen? He's going to be talking about circumcision, kind of the, the Old, uh, Old Testament, Old Covenant sign of, of being part of God's people. He's going to be talking about what does it actually mean to be part of God's people? How does one become part of the people of God? And he's also going to be talking a lot about the law, the very thing that these Judaizers were saying you need to adhere to, you need to rely on in order to be made righteous. He's going to be doing all of that in order to oppose the false gospel that was starting to be accepted by the Galatians. And in fact, the core of Paul's argument is actually very well summarized, I would say, in Galatians 3, 1 through 9. So if you have never really studied the book of Galatians, if you're not familiar with kind of the overarching narrative of the letter or the purpose of the letter or what Paul is really getting at in this book our passage this morning is a great place to start. It's a great launching point if you want to continue studying the book of Galatians and really what Paul is trying to communicate. And so here's Paul's argument in a nutshell. Here's how he's going to respond to this claim by these false teachers. It's by faith, not obedience to the law, that a person is made righteous. And not only that, but it's by faith that a person then grows in righteousness. It's it's by faith, it's not obedience to the law, it's not through works that you can be made righteous before God. And just the same, it's by faith, not by works, that you will grow in that righteousness, that you will walk in righteousness righteousness. And so going back to that question of how do we deal with our sin as Christians, Paul's answer is by faith. How do we conquer sin? It's by faith. Faith is the weapon. Faith is the tool that is given to us by God in order to conquer continually the sin that seeks to conquer us. The faith that saved you is the faith that sanctifies you and empowers you in the fight against sin. Now, I know that sounds very general, very ethereal. There's not a lot of meat on the bones yet. Paul's going to put some meat on the bones in these nine verses, okay? So, So we will get more specific than just faith is the answer. But before we expound on that idea of faith being the right response to sin. I just want to quickly provide three wrong responses, three alternative responses to sin that I think prove to be ineffective and even fatal. And I'm not just kind of pulling these out of a hat. I think these are three very common responses. I think these are things that we are guilty of. It's things that I'm guilty of, that I find myself very often coming back to maybe even not even realizing it. And so I encourage us as we go through these three to critically consider and ask ourselves, man, are there times that I fall into that trap of instead of responding in faith, that I fall back on these other alternative responses? So here's the first one. Here's the first wrong response to sin, indifference, indifference. So a lot of times indifference becomes our response when we maybe recognize the hold that sin has in our lives. We recognize that it is absolutely present, that it's real. But maybe we don't actually recognize how serious sin is. We we know it's there. We know it's wrong. We see how much of a grip it has on us. We we see how often we fall to it. It's not that we're ignorant of it. It's not that we even necessarily ignore it. But when it comes down to it, there's really very little effort that we actually make towards stopping it or fighting it. In fact, if we were to make a list of all the things that that concern us, of all the things that we want to change about ourselves and our lives, there would probably be dozens and dozens and dozens of things on that list before sin even came to our mind. That's indifference. That's indifference to sin. And the problem with that view is when we look at the Bible and what it says about sin, one thing is very, very clear. Sin is serious. In fact, it's so serious that that actually to willfully, to continually coddle or justify sin in our lives can actually be an indicator that we, in fact, do not know and love God at all. We have not truly experienced His saving grace in our lives. This is what 1 John is, is saying, 3, nine. 1 John 3.9 says this, "'No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God.'" In other words, the right biblical response to sin is anything but indifference. It is anything but not caring. The right biblical response to sin is that we actually seek to end it, that we fight actively against it. And what first John is claiming is that we cannot claim to love God while at the same time have a spiritual affair with our sin day in and day out. You cannot serve two masters, right? And so we cannot respond to our sin with indifference. It is a fatal fatal way to approach our sin so that's the first fatal response. The second one then is DIY mode. We kind of enter into this DIY mode when it comes to our sin. I'm sure all of us are very familiar with that acronym of "Do It Yourself." Uh, there's like a thousand HGTV shows about it. And uh, if you haven't noticed, it's actually all the same show. It's just with different couples every time. I don't know if you've noticed that. Or family members could be brothers, uh, just as an example. And um, and so. Uh, we love these kinds of shows. I, I mean, I love these kinds of shows. Literally, one of my favorite shows is uh, This Old House. I love This Old House. Um, it's not on HGTV. It's on PBS, so it's educational. But, um, you know, the goals of all those shows and and websites and blogs and networks, it's ultimately meant to empower people to to attack those big projects in the home, right? Hey, those projects aren't as difficult as you think they are. You can do this if you have the right mindset, if you've got the right resources. Do it yourself, and you'll probably save a buck in the process, right? And so we love the idea. We love watching these shows because we love the idea of kind of taking a daunting, seemingly impossible task and watching someone kind of break it down into a manageable, attainable process. Hey, you can do this, right? And so it's natural for us to approach our sin with a very similar mindset. If I just put in the effort, if I have a good plan in place, if I follow the steps, then I'll be able to solve the problem of sin. I just need to have the motivation. I just need to go in there and get my hands dirty. I just need to be willing to do it, and then my sin will be dealt with. This is is the false teachers in Galatia. This is what they were preaching. This is what the Galatian Christians were starting to believe. You're the wrong kind of person. Follow these steps to be the right kind of person, and God will finally accept you. But here's the problem with that mentality. It sees sin ultimately as a behavior issue. If you want to fix your sin, then you need to fix your behavior if you want to be loved by God, then be the kind of person that God would want to love. It's moralism. It's, it's legalism. It's the idea of if I just do the right things, God in return will love me. It is transactional faith. And the problem is, as we saw a few weeks ago in Daniel chapter three, as we were considering this idea of idolatry, we, we know that sin is not just a behavior issue. Sin is a heart issue. Sin is the result of us worshiping the wrong things. It's it's making the wrong things idols in our lives. It's bowing down to anything and everything other than God. And so if we want to be accepted by God, it means that we need to have not just the right behavior, we need to have the right heart. We need to have a new heart. And that's not something that we can do on our own. It's not something that we can do ourselves. We cannot give ourselves a new heart. So, wrong responses. Indifference, that DIY mode, get your hands dirty. Here's the the, the last fatal response to sin, despair. Despair. I would say, actually, this is the almost inevitable conclusion after we realize kind of the ineffectiveness of the first two responses, that we, that we throw ourselves then into despair. It's not that you're indifferent to sin. It's not that you're ignorant of it or don't care about it. In fact, you may even be overwhelmed with feelings of guilt and shame because you do very much care about it. You absolutely recognize its presence in your life. You feel dominated by it. You realize how serious your sin really is. And yet, at the same time, you are also filled with hopelessness because no matter how hard you try, it seems like sin is constantly something that is, that is conquering your life. It's something that you're constantly falling to. Maybe even at times without much resistance. And maybe you even think, man, it seems like there is not going to be an end to this. There is no way actually experience victory over this. You've kind of come to the end of yourself. You're at the end of your rope. Some of you may be there even this morning as you, as you come into this sanctuary. You feel defeated. You feel helpless. You feel isolated because you recognize that there is this huge wall of sin that seems to be separating you from God. And you say, man, I don't know how I could get over that wall and restore my relationship with God once again. And so what's the answer? What is the way that we actually restore our relationship with the Lord, that we deal with sin as Christians? Well, really, here's the, here's the great thing about Paul's answer. Whether you're a Christian who's struggling with sin right now, and again, you feel that, that barrier, you feel kind of that isolation between you and the Lord. Whether you're a Christian who's struggling with sin or you're, you're not a Christian at all, but, but man, you recognize your sin and you want to find the answer. You want to find the antidote, the solution. You want to be healed and forgiven of your sin no matter where you are on that spectrum, the answer is the same. It's faith. That's the whole point of Galatians 3, 1 through 9. It's what Paul keeps coming back to over and over and over again in this passage. And not just this passage, but throughout the whole book of Galatians. The faith that redeems you is the faith that sustains you. And Paul is going to call all of us to put our faith in or to trust in, specifically, three things when it comes to dealing with our sin. And that's what we're going to be spending the rest of our time on this morning. So first, things that we need to be trusting in in order to deal with, to fight against sin, we need to trust in the crucifixion. We need to trust in the crucifixion. So verse 1 says this, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, depending on which translation you have, this is the ESV that I just read. read. But uh, some translations will actually have verse 1 as kind of a rhetorical question with a sort of understood assumption of the Galatians are, are supposed to respond with us. That was us, right? We were the ones that saw that. So you might have something like, before whose eyes was it that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Galatians, right? Was it, was it not your eyes? Did you not witness Christ's crucifixion? And that's interesting because no matter what your translation says, no matter whether this is a statement or it's a question by Paul, either way, the Galatians would not have actually been present for Christ's crucifixion. There's no way the Galatians would have actually been there for that. They would not have seen Jesus die on the cross. And so what is Paul getting at when he's asking this question? Well, obviously, he isn't speaking literally here. He's not not making the claim that the Galatians were, were, in fact, literally present to see Christ's crucifixion. But he's trying to remind the Galatians that they've heard the gospel, they've heard the message of the cross so clearly and so graphically explained that it's as if they were actually present for it. It's not that they've studied it from an academic perspective. It's not that they're, they're just kind of familiar with it in, in, in kind of a, a logical way. They, they aren't just familiar uh, from like a historical perspective of, yeah, we, we, we've heard about that. We know that that happened. It's that the cross has been made known to them in such a way that it's as if they've actually experienced it. They have tasted and seen its beauty and its power. They've internalized it. They've seen its transforming work in their lives, in the lives of their family and friends, in the lives of their community. And so here, Paul's Uh, kind of unspoken question is, if if that's the case, if you have come to see the, the greatness, you've come to experience the beauty and the power of the cross, why would you ever rely on your own works as if that will be the determining factor in your position with God? If works were never enough to deal with your sin initially... If they were never going to be the thing that grants you forgiveness from your sin, then why would they be enough to deal with your sin now? This is what 1 John 1, 1.9 is getting at when it says, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, Paul is trying to explain there are two effects of the cross here at play. There's forgiveness of sin. That's the initial kind of effect of the cross. But then there's also this ongoing effect, which is a cleansing of sin. And so you're initially made righteous through the cross And yet there's this ongoing reality of you are now walking in righteousness because of the cross. And so the faith that saves you, Paul is saying, is the faith that also sustains you. The cross isn't just the answer for your past sins. It's the answer to your present and future sins too. It's sufficient, It's sufficient to cover the sins of yesterday. It's sufficient to cover the sins of today. And it is absolutely sufficient to cover the sins of tomorrow. And so you need to trust in the crucifixion as you conquer and fight against your sin. Here's the second thing that Paul then tells us to trust in. Not only do we trust in the crucifixion, but then we trust in the Holy Spirit. We trust in... In the Holy Spirit, and this is his emphasis really for the next several verses, verses two through five. And I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not gonna reread these verses for us, but there are a couple observations that I want to make uh, throughout this particular section. So, first, the first observation here is that Paul's question, because he's kind of worded these next few verses in question format, Paul's question is not whether or not the Galatians have received the Spirit. That's not what he's asking. His question is whether or not they understand why or how they have received the Spirit. So for example, in verse 2, he isn't asking the Galatians, did you receive the Spirit? Do you have the Spirit? He's not asking that question. Instead, he's asking, how did you receive the Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or did you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith? What was it that actually brought the Spirit into your lives? Did you earn the Spirit's favor and presence in your life? Was that a transaction between you and God where you've you've done the right things and so He's rewarded you with the Spirit? Or was the Spirit given to you by God, is He present in your life now as a result of your faith? The second thing that I want us to see is that verses 2 and verses 5 are are really, basically, they're the exact same thing. They're the exact same verse. The only difference being that verse 2 is written in a past tense. Verse 5 is written in a present tense. So in verse 2, the Galatians, Paul says, received the Spirit, or they were given the Spirit. But when he gets down to verse 5, he's changed his language a little bit, and he said that God supplies the Spirit. God works miracles in their lives. You could more literally actually say that God continually supplies, God continually works in the lives of the Galatians. And so what Paul is trying to do in the way that he's 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 wording and crafting these questions, he's trying to highlight Two key functions of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. Now, there are a lot more than two functions of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I'm not going to, obviously, I'm not going to expound on all of them today. We, we did preach a series on the Holy Spirit, a four-part series in July. So just, you know, six or so months ago. And, and I would encourage you, if you want to learn more about the Holy Spirit's role in our lives, go back and listen to that series But here he's just highlighting two very important roles of the Holy Spirit. So on the one hand, Paul is arguing the Spirit seals all believers for eternity. That's the initial working of the Spirit that's being referenced here in in, uh, verse 3, when Paul says, having begun by the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is the initiator. He's the catalyst to the Christian faith. It's not a question of you know, is he there or isn't he there? He is there. He is the beginning of our faith. In other words, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we as Christians can confidently say our salvation is secure. He seals our salvation at the moment of salvation. It's how the Christian life begins. But on the other hand, not only does the Spirit seal us, Paul goes on to say, basically, he also, he sanctifies or he cleanses us. So there's that initial work of the Holy Spirit in our lives where he is present, he's real, he's there, he seals us. But then there's also this ongoing, very present work of the Holy Spirit in our lives where he's completing that initial work. He's perfecting us. And and day in and day out, he's, he's working on us. He's refining us. He's helping us uh, conquer sin. And there's a day that will come not in this life, but in the life to come, there are, there's a day that will come for all Christians when that 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 work of the Holy Spirit is finally completed, where what he began is going to be made full. It's going to be made perfect. And so in verse three, what Paul is trying to get us to understand is that if the Spirit was necessary, At the beginning of your Christian faith, if he was necessary in order to bring you from death in sin to life in Christ, if that's how the Christian faith begins, then he's also necessary to empower you in that new life. He is not just the power that begins the Christian faith. He is the power that sustains the Christian faith. The way the Christian life starts, the way the Christian life is maintained, the way the Christian life is completed is by the power of God as we depend on the Spirit to work. And so we need to trust in His power, not just willpower, we need to trust in His power as we fight against sin, that he is real, that he is present, and that he is maintaining us. So how should we respond to sin? First, by trusting in the crucifixion. Second, by trusting in the Holy Spirit. And then finally here, we need to trust in God's promises. We need to trust in God's promises. So to illustrate this, Paul spends the whole last part of this passage, verses 6 through 9, talking about Abraham, a real uh, person in the Old Testament, all the way back in Genesis. And to understand the significance of this, to understand why in the world Paul would be bringing up Abraham sort of in the middle of this argument uh, about justification we have to remember who it is that Paul is actually writing to. Remember, he is, he's writing to a bunch of Gentile Christians. And these Christians are, are starting to buy this lie from Judaizers, from Jewish false teachers, that if you want to be part of God's people, if you want to be brought into the fold, if you want to be brought under the covenant, if you want to be righteous, then what you need to do is obey the law. You need to look like, act like, live like a Jew. Again, at the the core of this argument is moralism. It's legalism. It is do the right thing, be the right kind of person, because you're not naturally the right kind of person. But if you just be the right kind of person, then that's the kind of person that God's going to accept. But Paul's rebuttal to that idea is actually so brilliant. It's very simple, but it's a brilliant response to this particular situation. Because what he's going to do is he's going to go all the way back to the promise of God made in Genesis 15, made to Abraham. And he says, obedience to the law, doing the right thing, being the right person, that cannot be what makes you righteous. That cannot be the answer here. Because even Abraham The father of Israel, literally the source of the Jewish people, the one that they lift up and call their father. Even he wasn't made righteous by the law. It says in Genesis 15, and he reiterates again in Galatians 3 Abraham was made righteous by his faith. God promised Abraham offspring. God promised that all the nations would be blessed through him, through his lineage. All Abraham had to do was believe God. And notice when Paul kind of points back to this particular moment in redemptive history, he doesn't say Paul believed, or (laughs) Paul, Abraham believed in God. He says Abraham believed God. In other words, Abraham did not just come to some kind of intellectual assent that God is out there, he's real, and so I need to trust in him. But it's that Abraham believed in what God was saying. Abraham believed in the promises that were being made to him. He believed those promises would come true. And because Abraham believed, Paul says in verse 6, His belief was counted, or an even better word uh, would be credited. Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, the origin of Abraham's righteousness was not found in and of himself. It was a credit that was applied to him outside of himself. And so just like you and I would swipe a credit card in a store, that, that card has no actual monetary value assigned. There's not literal money on the card, right? It's not, it's not you actually paying the bill. It's actually the bank that's paying the bill. They are, they are just giving you a credit. And the reason that that cashier lets you actually walk out of the store with, with hands full of goods and put it in your car and drive away is not because they believe in you, It's because they believe in the bank name that's on that credit card, that that bank is going to cover your bill until you're able to pay it back. And so in a very similar way, Abraham's righteousness was credited. It was applied to him by God. It was a righteousness that was from God. It was not a righteousness that Abraham naturally owned. It was not a righteousness that was in and of himself it was a righteousness with with an origin outside of himself from God. And it was given to him because of his faith in the promises of God. Now, why is that important for you and me to understand? We are not we're not in the situation of the Gentiles. We're not being convinced that Judaism is the, is the new Christianity. You know, Judaism is the new black or something like that. Um, so, so why is this like important for us to understand right here and right now? Well, it's important because Paul says that just like faith made Abraham righteous before God, it's faith, not obedience to the law, not good works, It's faith that will make us righteous before God. Just like God promised a son to Abraham, God has promised his son to us as the propitiation for our sins. Just like faith established the people of God in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, It is faith that establishes and determines the people of God in the new covenant, in the new testament. All we have to do is believe. God has already done the work, God has already made the sacrifice. It's faith in the promise that his righteousness is available to us through the cross that saves us. And it's that same faith that sustains us. And so friends, let's not move past faith and treat it like it's just the starting point of Christianity. Like it's just this initial step that we take in order to become Christians. And then after we've become Christians, now it's back on us to be the right kind of person. We have to try really hard, right? We've got to do it ourselves. But let's go back to faith and recognize that we shouldn't move past it. We need to grow deeper in it. We need to return to it day in and day out. Because here's what faith does. Going back to those three wrong responses, here's how faith is the better response, how it is more effective than any of those alternative responses. Faith turns our indifference to sin into brokenness over sin. When we look at the cross, when we put our faith in Jesus' sacrifice, we realize just how serious sin really is, that it demands such a high price So high that God Himself had to die on a cross in order to pay its penalty. It turns self-reliance, that DIY attitude into dependence. As we, as we consider the Spirit's power and His necessity in our lives to actually have victory over sin, not just initially, but eternally, that He is required, that His power is necessary in order for us to claim victory over those sins. And faith turns our despair into desperation as we realize it is not our own righteousness that could make us right before God, but it is God's righteousness given to us because of faith in him, who he is, and what he has promised us that actually makes us righteous and right before God. And so friends, we need to trust, not just yesterday, but today and tomorrow and forever. We need to trust that the crucifixion covers all our sin. We need to trust that the Spirit's power will lead us into freedom from sin. And we need to trust that God's promises exchange our sin for his righteousness. So let's do that. Let's have faith to fight sin. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much that you you do not leave us to our own devices when it comes to our sin. But Lord, you generously give yourself as the payment that on the cross you pay the penalty for our sin, that through the Spirit you unite us to yourself, that you cleanse us from unrighteousness, and that you promise that what you've started in us will surely be brought to completion. And Lord, I pray that we would believe that yesterday, today, and forever, that we would never move past that reality, but that we would return to it as we continue to deal with sin in our lives, that we would fight it, not relying on our own power, not relying on our good works, but that we would return to faith in you, that you have done the work on our behalf, you've empowered us in that faith, to continue fighting. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.